From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece, actually. Our final broadcast from Kalamata. We went up to Athens and then eventually head home to Toronto. We're going to talk about BEKs here in just a moment. Are you familiar with BEKs? Yet another acronym, this one from the field of the paranormal, Bite Kids or Black-Eyed Children. Uh, these are cases that involve sorts of children who approach individuals and ask them from rand- for random favors or help, and uh, these kids are reported to look normal in appearance except for their solid black eyes. Uh, just solid black eyes. And the mannerisms that these children show upon uh, encounter are not like you would uh, observe in children in that particular age group. Uh, usually witnesses say these children appear to be in a trance-like state. Uh, they can be described as lethargic, catatonic, yet forceful, even demanding and insistent in getting you to do what they want. But again, it's these black eyes uh, that are so disconcerting. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is standing by our paranormal expert who joins us the second Sunday of every month. We'll be here to chat about that. Just a quick uh, programming note. At the bottom of the hour, we're going to throw the phone lines wide open. The last half hour of the program, you, me, and the telephone. Give me a call and uh, ask me anything or talk about anything, as long, of course, as it uh, uh, has to do with things conspiratorial, paranormal, supernatural. You know the drill. You've been listening to the program for long enough now. Uh, that being said, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a leading expert on the paranormal. She's the author of 45-plus books and hundreds of articles on a wide range of topics. She conducts original field investigations of haunted and mysterious sites and researches entity contact experiences and spirit communications. She is a consulting editor of Fate Magazine. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you? Doing well, Richard. I have to tell you, I received an email recently, since the last time you were on, uh, from a woman, and she asked me uh, whether I had ever... Uh, done a show on something called black-eyed people, or specifically black-eyed children. And uh, I said, not that I could recall, however, that jogged my memory, and I remembered receiving an email uh, from a woman, and I actually went back in my files and I found it, and it was a, uh, a woman in the States who was in a, uh, at that time they had Kmart, I don't know if Kmart is still around, but she was in a Kmart parking lot, and she was suddenly... Uh, surrounded by a group of small children, like maybe a half dozen children. And they were, many of them were sort of, uh, you know, dressed in, in uh, hoodies or hooded sweatshirts. And uh, they all sort of were looking down at their feet, kind of shy. But one of them sort of assumed the role of, of spokesperson and uh, was rather precocious, very eloquent for, let's say, a 10 or an 11-year-old almost speaking like an adult, and they wanted, they seemed to be asking this woman if they could get a ride somewhere, and of course there were half a dozen of them, there was no way she could fit them all into her car, but then, as she looked into this child's face, she was horrified, because this child had black eyes, I'm not just talking about black pupils, but solid black, no whites in the eyes, just solid black. And then she noticed the skin color was somewhat sort of white and, and, and bluish. Uh, 
which again was, you know, very unsettling. And when the child noticed that the woman obviously noticed the, the features, the child became very angry, very animated, very aggressive, and started ordering this woman around, saying, you are going to let us in your car, and you're going to drive us here. And uh, she almost felt like she was under some sort of mind control. Somehow she managed to break out of the spell. She got in her car, locked the doors, and tore off. And uh, she wrote me this email. So, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, what can you tell us about black-eyed people or black-eyed children? What's going on here? They're one of the newest wrinkles in a very old and ancient phenomenon. And uh, they've been documented since about the 1980s. At first they were called the black-eyed kids, and then uh, it became the black-eyed children. Now, really, we need to call them black-eyed people because accounts are coming in about black-eyed adults as well acting in the same manner as uh, the woman described in her encounter. I consider them to be a mutation of um, phenomena that have plagued human beings from the beginning of time. And it's taken different forms throughout history uh, as fairies, as the devil, as men in black, as shadow people. Uh, I believe myself that the black-eyed children and adults are a form taken by the jinn. And I did write about them in the Jinn Connection, uh, my new book. Uh, some people think that they're demons and they act in demonic ways. But um, it, it seems that whatever it is, if it's the jinn or some other sort of personification of malevolence, whatever it is, it morphs and shapeshifts throughout history uh, to appear in ways that uh, are very consistent in terms of, of how it attacks and upsets people. But um, whether it's um, a mysterious creature or a devil-looking thing or black-eyed children, uh, it all points back to the same origin. And I do believe the jinn are involved in this. That's interesting. Uh, you, you and I have talked extensively about jinn, these interdimensional uh, entities that I guess predate humankind and are somewhat resentful that we were sort of squeezing them out of their turf. The interesting thing I found is with these black-eyed children, because I went on and did, uh, on, online and did a little research as well, and that is the fact that they seem to require people's permission Rather than just, you know, barging into someone's house, they'll appear on the doorstep, they'll knock, they'll first ask politely, can we come in, can we come in? But if you don't invite them into your home, or as this woman who emailed me, if you don't allow them to come into your car, they can't. And to me, that's sort of reminiscent of something that we talked about last month, which is the, at least the Hollywood depiction of the vampire. You have to invite them in. What's going on there? Well, actually, that sort of premise exists with all kinds of negative entity encounters. It's very prominent in the vampire lore, of course. Uh, we also find it uh, in encounters with demons, that uh, demons, in order for them to wreak the most havoc, uh, we have to somehow invite them into our lives. Now, when they they approach people, uh it's, it's often when people are very distracted. Uh, there are a lot of parking lot encounters. People are putting things in their car, getting out of their car, getting into their car. 
And all of a sudden, there are these kids, and it's seldom one. It's usually two or more, uh, but not like a huge group of them. And so the average person is just like, oh, there's some kids here, and maybe they need some help. So a lot of times they look disheveled, kind of ragged. And they don't really notice right off the bat that something is very wrong with these children. Um, it's making the eye contact that uh, brings the problems. And when they lock eyes with these entities, they see that they are totally black, and they, uh, they're often filled with terror and dread. Uh, meanwhile, these entities, uh, these children are insisting that they want something. They want to get into the car. Sometimes they'll come and bang on uh, uh, store doors uh, after they've closed. They want in because they want something. They come to the doors of residences. Uh, and sometimes they do want to go somewhere. They want something from you. But what they want is that link to you, and they get it through the eye contact. Um, and once that's made, it seems like they have um, a hook into a person. They, the person will often feel very wasted. Uh, they might have health problems. They might have nightmares for weeks on end where these, these black-eyed beings invade their dreams. So these characteristics are shared by other kinds of invasive entities. It's just a different form for something that really wants to harm us. Is it possible? Let me just play skeptic here for a moment. Uh, you know, and when we're talking about the appearance of the eye and the fact that there is no differentiation between the, the pupil uh, and what is normally the white part of the human eye, which I believe is called the sclera or the sclera. So in other words, there is no white part. It's, in, it's just all black. Now, in, in certain animals, you know, you'll have the pupil and then you'll have maybe uh, the sclera will be, you know, like in a dog or a, or a horse, for example, the sclera will be maybe a light brown. So there's a differentiation. Mm -hmm. But with these black-eyed children, I mean, the, the pupil, the, the retina, the iris, it's all, the, the sclera, it's all black. Is it possible that there's some sort of a, an eye disease, I don't know, a vitamin deficiency that might explain this? I don't know of any. And... Um, this is such a common characteristic. Um, these cases are scattered all over the place where, you, you know, people like myself and David Weatherly, who uh, investigated this phenomenon, a researcher that I know in Arizona and wrote a book on the subject, uh, a lot of us are getting reports from all over the world. And so uh, I, I don't know of any eye disease. I think it is more a supernatural phenomenon. Now, the, the question is, like, well, if these are entities who are trying to uh, gain, you know, get a hook into us and gain something from us, why would they give themselves away with black eyes? Um, and we run into these contradictions in the paranormal all the time. Uh, and... For example, with shadow people, black-eyed children could be very related to shadow people, which are a form of jinn. And these are uh, dark entities who come into the bedroom. They look like silhouettes, usually tall men. And they always seem to be dressed in um, like a trench coat or a cape. And, and they're often wearing a hat. Why would they need to wear a hat? And sometimes the hat is, is kind of silly looking. But... 
the, the figures strike terror into the heart of people, and it may very well be. I've speculated with the shadow people that maybe they're wearing a hat because the entity that's shape-shifting into that form can't get the head right, and so they cover something with the hat. Uh, and it may very well be with the black-eyed children that uh, they, they can't alter the eyes or they deliberately have the black eyes because they know that's going to absolutely strike terror. And when we have that automatic fear reaction, there's an adrenaline rush, and in a a millisecond, we could be, like, very open to them to, um, to grab hold of us in some sort of energetic way. Now, we find the same phenomenon with the abducting ETs. Uh, the abductees are mesmerized by compelling eyes. The jinn, when they want to uh, put someone under their spell or they want to seduce someone or they, they want to get something from someone, they also have mesmerizing eyes. So it's a shared phenomenon with predatory entities. All right, let's take a time out. We'll come back and continue to talk about the phenomenon known as black-eyed children. Actually, there are black-eyed adults, and we'll touch on that when we come back as well. Rosemary Ellen Guiley right here on The Conspiracy Show, coming to you live from Kalamata in southern Greece. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us the second Sunday of every month. And tonight we're talking about black-eyed children. I've received some emails uh, about this phenomenon, people uh, being approached by uh, children, or or let's say uh, adolescents, uh, and uh, being totally uh, shocked and horrified when they discover that these children have solid black eyes. No whites in the eyes at all, just solid black and uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, is suggesting that there may be a connection uh, between these black-eyed children and, and, and an entity that she has documented uh, uh, quite a bit, known as the jinn, uh, which are, of course, known as genies here in, in the Western culture. Uh, there are, though, cases of adults. Uh, people have seen adults with black eyes, and I've heard black-eyed uh, adults... Uh, mentioned in connection with the notorious men in black, those people that will show up after someone has you know, seen a UFO and perhaps thought about going public with it. Uh, what can you tell us about these, uh, these encounters with adults with black eyes? Well, they're very similar to the uh, child uh, encounters where they want something. They want something from you. And uh, the cases with the men in black... Um, they started out being documented in the UFO uh, literature where people who had had marked experiences, sightings, or contact uh, suddenly had these these entities in, in their life. They were visited by uh, these weird-looking men with dark eyes, um, black clothing, and strange behavior. who seemed to know a lot about them and warned them not to talk about it. Um, all of these things are interconnected in very strange ways because the men in black have connections to uh, the shadow people who have connections to jinn, and the jinn have connections to abducting ETs, and the ETs and the jinn have connections to fairies, and fairies have connections to the devil. So um, 
are we dealing with like an Oz behind the curtain here? Um, and who is that Oz? Um, many people think that it's probably the jinn. Other people say it's demons. John Keel called it the, the trickster of the universe, who uh, some cosmic force which is always messing around with us at our expense, and uh, we never seem to know why. So the adult encounters uh, can be equally terrifying as the child encounters. Now, one thing also that seems to harm people the most is touch and if you lock eyes with these entities uh, you're in for a hard ride and if one of them is able to touch you in any way it seems to impart something into your well-being and your health and your mind that also has a very deteriorating effect but the black-eyed adults aren't they don't seem to be as common yet as the children and maybe that's just because uh, we just haven't got enough reports of them in yet but if one goes online uh, this is a very popular topic and there are I dare say thousands of of these accounts uh, just online, and and um, I mean I don't know what the motivation would be for someone to lie about this. I mean they don't, you know, they don't leave their contact information. It's not like they're they're looking for fame or fortune. Uh, what do you think? Is this is this phenomena real, Rosemary? I treat it as real, and uh, I have talked to more skeptical people. Who say, look, you know, we never heard about the black eyed kids until. Uh, around the 80s, and then um, someone must have just started this up as an urban legend. Now everybody's jumping in. Uh, there are too many connections uh, with these beings to other kinds of um, predatory entities that we've been dealing with throughout human history. And uh, I uh, consider it to be a, a shape-shifted form of uh, yet another way for predatory entities to, to bother us. And it seems like once we get accustomed to one form, um, the, the entity or the phenomena, if it's not um, you know, personalized, it, it morphs into something else. And I think that's what we've got here. I suspect that uh, there are many more cases than we know about right now, despite the fact that so many have been posted on the Internet. When I started researching shadow people about 10 years ago, um, there were things posted on the Internet, you know, some cases, and I started researching and publicizing shadow people a lot. And um, this phenomenon also grew, and now you can find thousands of cases of shadow people. I think that uh, people suddenly, they read these cases and they suddenly realize, oh my gosh, you know, this is real, it's happened to me or it's happened to somebody I know, it was not my imagination. Have you had an encounter with a, a black-eyed person or has one of your, uh, someone that you know or maybe a client, so someone that you've done an, an investigation for, have, have, have they had an encounter with a black-eyed child? I have not yet encountered black-eyed children myself, and uh, I don't have any in my active cases uh, or even some of my recent cases that are now closed. Uh, I have received emails from people who, who um, have heard about the black-eyed children or they've uh, read about the jinn and they make the connection to the jinn and they want to tell me about them. So um, I, I am indeed getting reports about them. And uh, people are, when they have these encounters, they, 
are genuinely shook up. Uh, I don't think people make these things up. Um, all of us deal in the paranormal. We all deal with uh, cases that are more projections or, you know, fantasies or stimulated by uh, having seen something on TV. And, um, you know, that's a hazard in the business. But on, on the other hand, um, people carry these secrets around for a long time sometimes before they feel comfortable with talking about them because they do fear ridicule. And uh, I, I think that's probably one of the factors here, that people have had these encounters and they either don't know what to make of them or they've shrugged it off as, well, maybe I just imagined they had black eyes or something, and then they read something that matches their experience, and suddenly they can't ignore it any longer. Well, uh, witness to that, uh, the fact that we're talking about it now over the radio and people hearing this uh, may feel that it's time to unburden themselves just to receive this e- email. My husband and I were on our way up north on I-75, which uh, you know travels from Detroit, Michigan, all the way down into Florida. But this uh, email is from Michigan. Uh, traveling way up north on I-75 during the afternoon. Luckily, it was not at our normal time in the evening. We have a little place in northern lower Michigan and often go up there for the weekends. As was our custom, we pulled in at our usual rest stop, and I went into the woman's restroom. As I was preparing to leave the room, I suddenly noticed a thin, dark-haired woman standing alone and staring directly at me. I instantly felt a terrible sense of dread, as though there was something deeply unnatural about her. I then noticed the eyes, which had been staring coldly at me, and they were completely black. I saw no color whatsoever and no pupils. I felt an extremely strong need to get away from her as quickly as possible, as there was something quite threatening about her, or quietly threatening about her. Her stare was devoid of any emotion other than something very cold and disconnected. You know, as I'm reading this email, uh, Rosemary, and it goes on for quite a while, but... uh, it almost sounds like the accounts I hear from alien abductees talking about greys. And they, of course, have black eyes, solid black eyes. And people describe them as being cold and disconnected. Do you think, I mean, I know you, you, you tend to believe that they could be related to the jinn, but could they be ETs? They certainly could. And in fact, we, we really don't know how many entities are out there. Uh, interacting with us because a great deal of shape-shifting seems to go on. Uh, the jinn, for example, are known as masterful shape-shifters. We have many kinds of, of uh, alien entities involved in the abduction scenario. And we have cases where people have witnessed being shape-shift from one form to another, uh, and they, they seem to do it right in front of them. Um, we have cases uh, of the reptilian kind in, uh, among those where People think they're dealing with a human, and then suddenly they see reptilian characteristics come out, literally scaly skin and the reptilian eyes. And um, sometimes it's just for for an instant, but it's an unmistakable sort of transformation. The universal reaction that people have to all of these forms is this dread. And uh, I have come to the conclusion that um, this is part of a stalking of human beings where that is the desired reaction. They want the dread because it weakens us. Uh, we, we lose a lot of life force energy when we're frightened. And it's probably something that they literally use as a food source. 
there are many entities besides the jinn who are known as feeders, and non-human vampires are among those where the life force is literally vampirized off. So um, there's even the possible scenario that whoever or whatever is behind these manifestations is trying something out on us to see, you know, how well will this stick as uh, a tactic against human beings. Well, this uh, this email writer goes on to say, um, there was also something almost predatory about her, as though she was honing in on prey while she stood there so still. I had a strange sense of her feeling superior or stronger in some way. Again, the sense of a predator watching its prey. I left as quickly as possible, showing as little reaction to her as possible. I got back into the car and left. I have to say this was one of the most memorable brief experiences I've ever had around a person, especially a stranger. I have never been able to shake the unexplainable feeling that she wasn't human. They aren't. They they look like humans, uh, and they take that form, but there's really nothing human about them. I am very convinced of that. What do you think, they, do would not... do, what do you think they would do, Rosemary? I mean, if someone were to allow them into their car or into their home, what do you think would happen? We might have a missing person case on our hands. Mm. Well, listen, Rosemary, uh, thanks for bringing this to our attention. Black-eyed children, again, a relatively new... Uh, phenomena uh, only around for the last 25, maybe 30 years, and we're hearing about it. And if you go online, you'll you'll learn that this seems to be a growing, expanding uh, experience. People are writing about it more and more often. Uh, thank you for this, Rosemary. What uh, what's up next for you? I'm going to be speaking on after death communications and dreams at the end of this month, August. Um, at the International Association for Near-Death Studies in Arlington, Virginia. And, in fact, that's the subject of a, a new book that I've just put together that will be out in time for the conference called Dreams from the Afterlife, Messages from the Dead, Visions of the Past and Future. So that's been uh, my current project. Also still at work on my book on multidimensional portals, which will be out when I probably see you next in uh, Arizona for the UFO Congress. Ah, yes, next February. All right, Rosemary, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, and have a great time. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, the the website again, www.visionaryliving.com. And we'll come back uh, in just a few moments. Open lines now to the top of the hour as we broadcast live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome back. Our final broadcast from Kalamata, Greece, before we pack up and head on to Athens. We've been broadcasting to you for the last five weeks from the Elite City Resort here in uh, Kalamata. Uh, you know, uh, so much uh, of Greece, we associate with Greece, ancient Greece, of course, the ancient ruins. And uh, we were up in uh, ancient um, Messenia uh, last week and enjoying that very much. Um, an amazing, an amazing um, uh, location if you get down here to the Peloponnesian region of Greece. There are all sorts of ancient ruins. Uh, but there are also... Um, ruins that aren't so ancient. Uh, yesterday, in fact, we were in um, a beautiful, a beautiful uh, area of Greece called Methoni, and uh, there is a, um, a medieval castle, uh, which I believe dates back to the the 12th century, and it was occupied by the Franks and the the, the Venetians. Uh, so, you know, 
when you come to Greece, don't just think it's all about ancient ruins. There are some wonderful medieval castles here as well. So we're enjoying it uh, tremendously, as I say, and uh, heading on to uh, Athens later today, departing for Canada, and we'll uh, be back in Toronto midweek, and I will be coming to you live next Sunday from our studios in Toronto on Jefferson Avenue, Liberty Village. I have a good show lined up for you. Rodney Asher, filmmaker Rodney Asher, will be uh, with me. His documentary film, Room 237, explores hidden subliminal, if you will, messages within uh, Stanley Kubrick's film, The Shining, which was a, um, I believe came out in 1980 or 81, and it was an adaptation of Stephen King's book, The Shining. Uh, it's been several years since I've seen it. It's one of those films that the mighty Aphrodite does not like to have into the house. Uh, she had a horrible experience watching that as a, as a teenager. Uh, and it's not one of her favorite films. However, uh, there's a lot more going on in that film, apparently, than we've been led to believe. So Rodney Asher, Room 237, next week on The Conspiracy Show, discussing the subliminal messages of Stanley Kubrick. Let's uh, talk just about anything goes now until the, uh, the top of the hour. And uh, we kick things off with John on hold from Toronto, wants to talk fake moon landing. John, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi, Richard. Thanks. Um, I heard your recent show on the fake lunar landing, and I was going to send you an email, but I couldn't get your exact email address, and a Twitter would have been too short for what I wanted to, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get anything said in, uh, in uh, what is it, 140 characters? Yes, yeah. Well, what I wanted to tell you was, I'm going to go from my email that I have here. The expert, he talked superficially of credibility problems with NASA using cameras in a hostile environment and the statement of one of the astronauts about being concerned about stepping over a camera cable, which suggested a cable in the studio. And also he yes. referred to Stanley Kubrick and his special camera being used in the studio to create the lunar landing. And so what I did was I thought there was a lot more to it than what he was suggesting. So I Googled NASA cameras on Apollo 11 and found what I thought I would find, which was they had still cameras attached to the astronauts on their, on their uh, spacesuits, it was around their neck, it was on their chest. These were Hasselblad cameras, and they yeah. were specially designed for the environment uh, in space, just like uh, you know the cameras that are used in nuclear plants or underwater under pressure. So those cameras that he was wondering how they would operate in a hostile environment were actually designed for that and housed for that. And on this mission, as in all missions at NASA at the time, the public view video uh, shots were video cameras not the kind of camera Kubik used. Kubik uses a film camera, right. and it's actually a Panavision 70. Uh, and if he shot anything on uh, film, and you saw that on television, any expert would know that's not uh, videotape, that's uh, film. Right, the resolution, the difference in resolution that's is remarkable. Right. Anyone can tell. Yeah, and there was a video camera mounted on a tripod outside of the lunar lander, which was wired to the lunar lander, so therefore there was a cable that astronauts had to be aware of. And if you go into Kubrick's special effects that he used in 2001 and the camera techniques, you're talking about highly sophisticated techniques requiring a great deal of time and numerous highly skilled professional technicians to achieve. And then if you go further and say, well, he shot this in the studio, then you're talking about, God knows, maybe 60 to 80 people of support technical staff, set designers, set builders, lighting crew, camera crew, sound technicians, 
And then you have to record and have lab staff if he's doing his film. And anyway, I, I could go on about it. I mean, there's just right, too right. many people. So then you'd have to say, are all those people part of a conspiracy and none of them is a whistleblower? It's hard to believe that that would be true. All um, interesting things that you bring up, uh, um, uh, John. Uh, it's interesting because I just I received another email on this very matter. Oh. Now, before um, I read that email, yes, because you you mentioned the cable and people listening at home um, may not have heard the the clip that we played from Buzz Aldrin. Yes. Now, Tim Spreen back in studio. If you have that Buzz Aldrin clip, we've played it a couple of times. So let's play it again. And then people will know what John is referring to and what my, my, my next email is referring to. Tim, if you could play that Buzz Aldrin. He writes about his experience in an autobiography called Magnificent Desolation. All three of us decided not to participate in the, uh, Apollo uh, 11. Why would we go there? You just get overawed. You set up a, a series of expectations, and <laughs> you're, you're bound to get disappointed one way or the other. I thrived on addictive substances, uh, alcoholism, and clearly that began to predominate in my unstructured life. It sounds like it may have been more difficult just to plan one human life than it was to plan that mission to the moon, at least for you. Well, yeah, it, it certainly was. What a bodacious challenge confronting people on Earth. We were obsessed with doing the best that we possibly could so that we wouldn't trip over the wire it goes out to the TV camera that's recording all that we're doing. Yeah, it makes perfect sense what he's saying. It does. It does. Yes. Uh, I think we've got a break coming up here. Okay. And um, on the other side, I'm going to read this email from uh, Michael Hernandez, uh, who adds to, uh, to what you were saying, John. Okay. But listen, great information. Thanks for the call. You're welcome. And uh, appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Bye. Back with more as we broadcast from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Broadcasting one final time from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece. Okay, so before the break, we heard from uh, John in Toronto, who, who had some excellent points regarding our show, a recent show, on the uh, Apollo 11 lunar landing hoax, quote, un, end quote. And uh, he, he talked about the, uh, the Buzz Aldrin clip that we played, and I played it again for you in which Aldrin uh, talks about, you know, having to take great care as so not to trip over the, uh, the cable that connected to uh, the, uh, the camera, which some have uh, suggested is, is evidence. And just for the record, I never, uh, you know, indicated one way or the other. I just simply threw the, the clip out there and asked what you thought. Uh, I mean, I find the, uh, the evidence suggesting there's a hoax intriguing, but... Again, I, I continue to lean towards the fact that we did, in fact, land on the moon. However, the Buzz Aldrin clip um, that I played, uh, again, mentions, uh, Buzz mentions, you know, taking great care to trip over this cable that's connected to the camera, which, again, has led some to believe, okay, they did shoot it in a studio with cameras, with, you know, which obviously have uh, video cables. So here's uh, an email from Michael Hernandez on the same topic. I enjoy listening to your show, but your recent comments about Al uh, Apollo 11 and the audio clip you play from Buzz Aldrin, which you use to suggest that the Apollo 11 was a hoax, are ridiculous. You should at least do a cursory investigation about the television cable that Aldrin was speaking about before assuming that Aldrin was hinting that Apollo 11 was being filmed on a soundstage. Here for your education... <laughs> 
little bit of uh, sarcasm there, perhaps. Uh, Here for your education is a copy and paste from Wikipedia. Quote, in addition to fulfilling President Kennedy's mandate to land a man on the moon before the end of the 1960s, Apollo 11 was an engineering test of the Apollo system. Therefore, Armstrong snapped photos of the uh, LEM so engineers would be able to judge its post-landing condition. He removed the TV camera from the MESA and made a panoramic sweep, then mounted it on a tripod 68 feet or 21 meters from the LEM. That was the, uh, the, lunar, the, the, the landing module. The TV camera cable remained partly coiled and presented a tripping hazard throughout the EVA. And uh, with that, Michael Hernandez signs off. With that, I must say, bless your heart. Sincerely, Michael Hernandez. Okay. So there you go. That's our uh, wrap, I think, on the Buzz Aldrin clip and the lunar landing uh, hoax. Uh, also wanted to um, mention, or uh, re- uh, read this, uh, a quick email from a Diane. Let me see here. Diane is listening in on one of our affiliates. There's the email here. Diane is listening in on K-R-O-S-A-M. That's uh, 1340 in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, It's a fairly lengthy email, just basically saying enjoying the show and was very interested in hearing more shows with uh, director Kevin Booth. Kevin Booth, of course, the film director, uh, perhaps best known for his uh, friendship with uh, uh, comedian... uh, now, Now his name has escaped me. Hicks. A uh, great comedian by the name of Hicks. Anyway, uh, he is also known for his uh, films, American Drug War, Parts 1 and 2. And we recently had Kevin on the program talking about American Drug War 2, Cannabis Destiny, uh, which was talking about uh, efforts by some to uh, decriminalize uh, the use of marijuana and also its medicinal uses. In, in the film, there was a, a young uh, child in the state of Montana or Washington, I believe, who was battling uh, a terminal cancer. And uh, this child's life was prolonged, supposedly, using cannabis oil. Now, I thought this article was rather apropos. This was a uh, a recent article from Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who is a, a neurologist and the chief medical reporter for CNN. And here's what Sanjay Gupta, Dr. Sanjay Gupta recently had to say about marijuana. The article is entitled, Why I Changed My Mind on Weed. Over the last year, he writes, I've been working on a new documentary called Weed. The title Weed may sound cavalier, but the content is not. I traveled around the world to interview medical leaders, experts, growers, and patients. I spoke candidly to them, asking tough questions. What I found was stunning. Long before I began this project, I had steadily reviewed the scientific literature on medical marijuana from the United States and thought it was fairly unimpressive. Reading these papers five years ago, it was hard to make a case for medical marijuana. I even wrote about this in a Time magazine article back in 2009 titled, Why I Would Vote No on Pot. Well, I am here to apologize. I apologize because I didn't look hard enough until now. I didn't look far enough. I didn't review papers from smaller labs in other countries doing some remarkable research 
and I was too dismissive of the loud chorus of legitimate patients whose symptoms improved on cannabis. Instead, I lumped them with the highly visible malingerers, just looking to get high. I mistakenly believed the Drug Enforcement Agency listed marijuana as a Schedule I substance because of sound scientific proof. Surely they must have quality reasoning as to why marijuana is in a category, is in the category of the most dangerous drugs that have no accepted medicinal use and a high potential for abuse. They didn't have the science to support that claim, and I now know that when it comes to marijuana, neither of those things are true. It doesn't have a high potential for abuse, and these are very legitimate medical applications. In fact, sometimes marijuana is the only thing that works. Take the case of Charlotte Fiji, who I met in Colorado. She started having seizures soon after birth. By age three, she was having 300 seizures a week, despite being on seven different medications. Medical marijuana has calmed her brain, limiting her seizure to two or three per month. I have seen more patients like Charlotte firsthand, spent time with them, and come to the realization that it is irresponsible not to provide the best care we can as a medical community, care that could involve marijuana. We have been terribly and systematically misled for nearly 70 years in the United States, and I apologize for my role in that. That's Dr. Sanjay Gupta from CNN in an article entitled, Why I Changed My Mind on Weed, and I'll uh, send that out as a tweet uh, for those who follow me, at Richard Sarrett. All right, so uh, that would certainly lend uh, a great deal of credence, I would think, to uh, uh, American Drug War II, Cannabis Destiny, Dr., or uh, rather, uh, uh, Kevin Booth. So thank you for the email uh, on that score. Now, the last hour, we were talking about uh, or on a, on a recent show, I should say, we were talking about solar storms. And uh, for those who missed it, I just wanted to play this a quick clip uh, from a, um, a contributor, a scientist with Discovery Magazine, or Discover Magazine, recently appearing on uh, Fox News, talking about the very real and present danger presented by solar storms. So, Tim, back in uh, Toronto, if you've got that clip, let's hear that now. Experts warn that a massive solar storm is set to erupt right here, and the devastation could total as much as $2 trillion. Corey Powell, editor-at-large, Discover Magazine. How, how come folks like you are so worried about solar flares in 2013? Well, so we know from watching the sun for hundreds of years, the sun goes through an 11-year cycle, being relatively quiet, very active and violent. Uh, 2013 is the peak of that 11-year cycle. So we know, like, almost like clockwork, every 11 years you go through a bad period. And each 11 years, as we have more technology, we have more satellites, we can depend more on our electrical infrastructure, we're more vulnerable. If we get hit with a solar flare, what does that do to us? What, what does it do to our technology? What does it do to our civilization? Right. So what you're looking at here, uh, the, the sun, this is, this is million-degree plasma coming out of the sun. Million. Million degree. Uh, coming out at 300 to 500 miles per second. Um, it travels through space, it hits the Earth, and actually the biggest thing that it does is, it, this is all, it's, a, it's all magnetized. The Earth is kind of a magnet. It wiggles everything, and that makes electrical currents that go crazy everywhere. So it can lead to blackouts, it can overload your satellites, it can fry radio transmissions and GPS transmissions. That's happened so that's, on a small scale before. Talk about the trillion dollars in damage. 
Uh, there you go. Uh, just a, a quick uh, bite from uh, Fox uh, Fox News, I believe, and that was a scientist from Discovery Magazine talking about uh, solar storms, a very real, uh, legitimate concern. And we narrowly averted an EMP catastrophe, we're told, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the end of July. And there's more in store. We are, as I, as I say, in the peak of this 11-year solar cycle. And uh, scientists now are looking at very closely what could happen during the next four months as we continue along into this, this window, this peak. Uh, a, a major, what they call a, a, a coronal mass ejection, could unleash an electromagnetic pulse that could impact the Earth, particularly... Uh, we're told, the eastern seaboard of the United States and could affect something like 40 million people, knocking out power grids, and not just for a period of uh, hours or days or weeks, but perhaps even years. So just think about the consequences of that for a moment, uh, being uh, left alone uh, in the dark for years, no power. Uh, think about what would happen to, to hospitals. Think about uh, communication, navigation, uh, security and the breakdown of uh, civility after, uh, you know, that neighborliness wears off after several weeks. Anyway, just uh, something to think about. And uh, Ron Patton uh, joined us as we discussed solar flares not too uh, long ago. Again, uh, just a heads up, coming up next week, our first show back in uh, Toronto, Rodney Asher the filmmaker, and uh, we'll talk about Room 237, his documentary about Stanley Kubrick's subliminal messages hidden inside the uh, the movie The Shining, and James DiEugenio will be back uh, as we continue along with our JFK series. Now, we've got about two, three minutes left here. I think I've got just enough time for this. Uh, had to, this was kind of a laugh-out-loud moment for me. Recently on, uh, on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, President Barack Obama uh, there, it was kind of uncomfortable because Leno had to sit there and listen to Obama claim that there is no domestic spying going on in the United States. Uh, Tim, do you have that clip at the ready? Can we hear that? A lot of these programs were put in place before I came in. Uh, I had some skepticism, and I think there's a, we should have a healthy skepticism mm -hmm. about what government's doing. I had the programs reviewed. We put in some additional safeguards to make sure that there's federal court oversight as well as congressional oversight that there is no spying on Americans. Uh, you know, we don't have a domestic spying program. So we don't have a domestic spying program. Well, if you believe that, what is it they say about the Brooklyn Bridge or uh, Swampland in Florida? Uh, I think we have time for this one as well. This was uh, one of my favorite sort of TV commentators in the United States, Judge Napolitano, uh, who used to be with Fox. I think he got turfed from there. But this was Judge Napolitano commenting on the National Security Agency's spying program and the Fourth Amendment. What the president said and what the president has done is as distressing as anything I have observed the government doing in my entire professional life. This president has orchestrated an end run around the Constitution of gargantuan proportions. He approved it. He authorized it. He knows its, its extent. He did it in secret and how he's denying that it exists. The federal government, in order to make their job of catching bad guys easier, they are determined to catch bad guys. God bless them for that. Has decided to sweep up the private communications of everybody else as well. If the Constitution and the Fourth Amendment were written for anything, 
It was written. They were written to prevent exactly that. For he's him not to go, the only president. Who no, he's not the these only president. Of... George W. Bush did it as well, and you and I debated it, and I expressed a similar view at the time. This is far grander in scope. You just had Congressman Justin Amash on. He is correct. This is every email and every phone call and every text of every American who uses a telephone or the Internet and who doesn't going back to early 2011, and the president has denied it. All right, uh, there you go. Uh, listen, um, so long from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece. I'll talk to you next time live from Toronto, our studios at uh, AM740, our flagship station. Thanks to Tim Spreen for production and uh, all of you listening at home. It's been uh, great to be here, but it's even going to be better to get home. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. <laughs>